Hi, I'm Eve Figge. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss BC's decriminalization response to the drug crisis. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. Welcome to today's episode. We recorded this on February 13th, 2023, still in the very early stages of a groundbreaking change in drug policy in British Columbia all part of a three-year pilot to no longer charge adults with up to two and a half grams of drugs for personal use. And that includes opioids like fentanyl, cocaine and MDMA, methamphetamine. Now, some people call this an experiment, a bit pejoratively perhaps in some cases. But then again, the war on drugs was a huge experiment that was neither grounded in science, health, compassion, or some are now arguing in the courts and human rights. Regardless, this BC experiment required buy-in from the federal government, and last May, the federal health minister granted BC an exemption under Section 56 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. The sale of trafficking and drugs is still illegal in BC and will be subject to criminal prosecution, but the goal of the pilot is to reduce the stigma and harm caused by drug use. What's less certain is whether it will succeed in giving those drug users access to the resources or the safe supply they need to overcome addiction so that hopefully greater numbers could return to becoming functional in their lives. It's that last point that my guest today is trying to make. My guest today is Rob Laurie, and he's here to walk us through the challenges ahead for governments in making this pilot succeed. He's an international lawyer qualified in England and called to the British Columbia Bar Rob has spent the better part of his career working to reform drug laws, specifically to improve medical patient access to cannabis, psychedelics, and sacred plant medicines so that doctors can provide treatments for anxiety, depression, addiction, and PTSD. He founded Adlusum Law Corporation in Vancouver in 2013. His legal practice focuses on corporate, commercial, and administrative law, licensing, regulatory, and constitutional charter issues concerning medical access to cannabis and psychedelics. Welcome to the show, Rob Laurie. Thanks for coming. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a real honor and a privilege to uh, be part of the podcast. Let's start by getting to know you a little bit. What is it that you do and how did you get here? Well, I'm a lawyer. I um, became a lawyer in England. I qualified as a solicitor to the Supreme Court of England and Wales after my law schooling at Oxford and uh, practiced in England for about four years after two years of articles and then came home requalified and was called to the bc bar as a barrister solicitor in august of 2011 and i guess as part of that requalification process i was required by the national committee on accreditation to write a series of exams and uh well four exams and let's see there was administrative law and constitutional charter law, which I was thinking, when the heck am I ever going to use this in my career as a corporate finance lawyer, which is sort of how I started. However, you know, I also, well, grew up in the cannabis space. We could talk about that as well. But my younger brother's best friend was effectively Seth Rogen's supplier, if you will, for seven and a half years back in the 90s. So that Coupled with being ADHD, and I was one of the youngest uh, diagnosed cases in 1980. I was age four, diagnosed as ADHD, and slight, and then you know on Ritalin shortly thereafter. So I guess how did I end up here as a cannabis psychedelics regulatory 
constitutional, administrative, criminal lawyer is effectively down to the fact that, well, growing up, I had more drugs than hot dinners. And the narrative surrounding the access and use of this as medicine was very much a collaborative discussion between my parents, family doctor, and teachers, which compared to how and witnessing how things are done or have been done traditionally with respect to other medicines, such as cannabis, I mean, the experience has been night and day. I mean, when I was six living in Texas, no one said anything about, oh, what the developing brain of a six-year-old on weapons-grade methamphetamine. No one said anything. They just recognized that for whatever reason, my brain was producing a surplus of of some things and a deficit of others and access to Ritalin made the, uh, the difference, at least in my case, between either being, you know, a top functioning productive member of the class or the Tasmanian devil. So really there was no gray area with drugs and medicines growing up. These were viewed as something that, you know, help people. And if used correctly are the difference between you know, a productive, successful life or the diametric opposite. So to sum up, yeah, I feel I'm a voice for those that don't have one when it comes to reasonable, dignified patient access of medicine. And I've been yeah, very involved in the fight for the legalization of access to cannabis and more recently in uh, the area of access to psychedelic therapy. So yeah, I run my own practice now at Lucem Law Corporation based in Vancouver, but I've been doing cases uh, throughout Canada and consultancy work internationally. So none of this was preordained except that when you look back on your life, it all makes sense. Exactly. I mean, up until a few years ago, all this diverse experience like securities fraud, litigation experience, cannabis, I used to structure offshore hedge funds for a, a leading uh, international hedge fund practice. Prior to that, I was working for Sullivan and Cromwell, which traditionally is regarded as the CIA's law firm on Wall Street. So very unique and varied experience. And, I, and, I, and it's really been, I think, cannabis and you know psychedelics has enabled me to sort of encompass a number of practice areas and experiences and really bring them in together. So what was a nightmare for recruiters probably 10 to 14 years ago now isn't too hard give, um, to place me uh, or uh, utilize me in unique and interesting scenarios involving you know cannabis, psychedelics, regulatory issues, and of course, all of the uh, securities fraud and other issues that we're seeing. So I don't know. I just, um, I guess the key is, is if you follow your passions and do work that interests you, as opposed to what appeases a partnership board, uh, it leads to, I think, a lot more fulfillment and satisfaction when it comes to practicing law and getting up every day and doing things that are unique and authentic. That's a great introduction to who you are and what you do. Let's attack the topic of today's discussion a little bit, which, you know, I mean, to try and frame things a little bit, I think really what we're talking about here today more broadly is drug policy. There are a lot of extraordinary things 
going on, it seems, in this country, but in other jurisdictions around the world as well. I have people asking me, like, how the hell is it that illegal mushroom stores are popping up and staying open in Canada? Do you have an answer to that? Well, no pun intended, popping up like mushrooms. So a little other fact about me. At one point in time, I represented probably 40% of the unlicensed cannabis dispensaries in British Columbia from about 2015 onwards when the city of Vancouver made the decision to, if you will, regulate medicinal cannabis dispensaries, which under the constitutional division of powers, that is not a area for municipal governments. But the city of Vancouver did it anyway. And my theory is, is that they weren't planning to regulate dispensaries at all. This was an elimination or an, a regulation policy guised as an elimination or an elimination strategy guised as a regulatory policy. Because look, out of 150 plus dispensaries that were operating in Vancouver at or around January 2015, the city decided to introduce land zoning and buffering of 300 meters, which of 150 plus dispensaries, 13 were eligible. So at the end of the day, no other business would be regulated in the name of public health and public safety by eliminating effectively 80% of the businesses. So my theory really was that the city of Vancouver did this as a means of trying to shut down a proliferating problem. So that leads fast forward to now, 2023, and we're about by my estimates, about 10 or so illegal stores. Well, they're not illegal. They're licensed to sell either novelty, novelty licensing or food, food, food mushrooms, right? And really, the city, I think, knows the problem is there, but they're reluctant to deal with it because one, they know that the VPD are not going to address the issue. They've made it very clear that psilocybin, psilocin mushrooms are not a big deal for them considering the larger public health and safety and violent crimes they're dealing with. So it's kind of a catch-22. So really the city, I think, is quietly allowing these stores to pop up like mushrooms, right? One here, one there. And sooner or later, you see one or two, you'll see all of them. But and I think what they're doing is they're waiting to hit a certain population capacity, right? Because it doesn't make sense to go to court and get a ruling now if there's five or 10 stores. They don't have a problem yet. But if it gets to, I imagine, 50 plus or something like that, then the city of Vancouver, unlike the dispensary days, will be able to go to court. And I don't think it'll take two and a half years to get an injunction. I mean, that's what the, the case law, uh, City of Vancouver versus Karuna Health and others, which was you know affectionately known as the dispensary test case, effectively the City of Vancouver does have land use powers that they could shut these stores down yesterday if they wanted to, but they're not. So, you know, it, it again, they didn't shut down when there were 15 cannabis dispensaries. So I think they're going to let the problem I guess, uh, proliferate a little further until they can demonstrate that there's public health and public safety. Because let's not forget that the initial first 
10 to 15 of the cannabis medicinal dispensaries. I mean, they were doing good work. They effectively were providing access to and providing services that the government couldn't or wouldn't provide. So we have to give credit to some of these early pioneers and mavericks that without them, I don't think we would have had legalization and we certainly wouldn't have had a robust litany of litigation to get us to where we are now with medical access. So what is that service that government couldn't or should be providing? Well, we'll certainly get to that into the context of BC's decision to decriminalize drugs. And well, the answer that these businesses, cannabis businesses, safe injection sites really go to the heart of public health and public safety, but they, the government has not addressed the issue of safe supply. So I reached out to a friend and mentor of mine, John Conroy QC, who has been involved in much of the litany of litigation cannabis cases. He's been legal counsel to Vandu, that's the Vancouver area network of drug users. And he says, without access to safe supply, and that's really what the heart of this is, is that there is an absence of safe supply and that these quote unquote illegal or unregulated businesses that are popping up are at least providing some supply. And I mean, really, this is what the heart of why the government claims to do this is they don't want to legalize drugs, but they want to, and they have effective July 31st, 2023, is they have decriminalized to amounts of 2.5 grams or less of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, and MDMA. And this is effectively done to alleviate or negate the stigma which is traditionally attracted or has attracted to drug use. In fact, in 2022, it was recorded that there were 2,300 British Columbians that died from toxic drug supply. And, you know, this, the coroner has indicated that this is roughly about six people per day have died from drug deaths related to the use of this. The beauty of this decriminalization, which ultimately is a Section 56 exemption, it's a ministerial exemption that the province of British Columbia has applied for to the federal government, which effectively exempts these substances from the regular enforcement that uh, would apply under the Controlled Drugs and Substances uh, Act. And that amount is 2.5 grams. 2.5 grams. How do we land on 2.5 grams? Well, I asked Mark Hayden this question, and Mark's the former executive director of MAPS Canada and the associate professor of population studies at UBC. And, and, And it was effectively federal government had shown a tepid approach of approving 2.5 grams as for possession. Uh, The BC government submission to the federal government asked for 4.5 grams, while the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs called for decriminalization of one gram or less. And so really this was Health Canada trying to appease 
stakeholders with very, um, you know, a polar approaches. But it's interesting, you know, just to, before we get into it, I mean, when you look at, let's see, 2.5 grams, I did some calculations. In the case of MDMA, a typical dose of MDMA is about 100 to 125 milligrams. So if we assume a dose of 100 milligrams per use, 2.5 grams of MDMA could potentially be divided into 25 doses. Cocaine, for example, if we're talking powder, 2.5 grams, and if we're looking at a dose around 30 to 50 milligrams, well, 2.5 grams of cocaine would roughly be 62.5 doses. But if we look at crack, crack, if we're looking at a rock, which is around 0.1 to 0.5 grams in weight, we assume a rock of 2.5 gram or 2.2 grams, then 2.5 grams of crack cocaine would work out to roughly 12.5 individual rocks. So, and opioids, let's see here. Um, yeah, this, I thought this was interesting. 2.5 grams, if we look at an average dose of oxycodone or hydrocodone, doses are ranged from about 5 to 30 milligrams. So 2.5 grams would roughly work out to 166 individual doses. It's a pretty blunt instrument. Well, acid, we'll leave it on acid. So acid's typically measured in microgram. So yeah, acid, a typical dose is 50 to 150 micrograms. And they use micrograms rather than um, grams. So in the case of assuming an average dose of acid is 100 micrograms, that would be approximately 25,000 individual doses of 2.5 grams of pure LSD. So does this make sense? Let's discuss it further. <laughs> well, I mean, does it make sense to you? Well, in the case of methamphetamine, like, okay, I'm a, I am I use Ritalin. I'm on, let's see, 220 milligram tablets in the morning and 220 milligram tablets in the afternoon. Okay, I'm six foot four and about 240 pounds. So I'm a big guy and I've been using Ritalin from the age of four. So it's clear to say that my body has built up a tolerance and a resistance. But for a meth user, um, it says that the typical dose is 20 to 60 milligrams, okay? I'm still above that as a diagnosed uh, ADHD, but what that works out to is 2.5 grams of methamphetamine. Now that can be divided into 62.5 individual doses. So Again, does that make sense? Well, it may if there's a safe supply. But what I think is overlooked with a lot of this is Vancouver police were not really arresting people for small amounts in the first place. 2.5 grams, I sort of see it as a arbitrary amount that now gives police certain stop and check powers that they might not have had before. And you think about it. As a lawyer, we're always advising clients that on arrest or on questioning from persons in authority, which could be a police officer, a customs agent, a Department of Fisheries officer, a border agent, etc. Police, those are statements to persons in authority. So if a police is now doing a spot check, are you advised to talk to the police, to start showing them what you've got? And on another note, 
how are police even going to really enforce this? Because I've been instructed that they're not going to go around with scales. They're going to effectively use like photographic representations to illustrate what 2.5 grams of these substances look like, which at the end of the day, how are the police going to know that that's crack cocaine and not, you know, rock candy, for example, without testing and analysis that could again unduly involve people in the criminal justice system and tie in dollars, investigative powers, which may be better used elsewhere. What's the goal here? Like, what, what, why are we moving ahead with this in a sort of random kind of 2.5 grams is going to be the marker for all these drugs that carry different weights from one another? What's the goal of decriminalization? What's the immediate goal? Thank you. Yeah, great question. So the goal as it's been stated by the government and the literature I've read, is that it's to reduce shame and stigma surrounding drug use, which the province says keeps people from accessing life-saving services, which I think is a cop-out answer because, you know, let's just look at get you know trying to retain a psychiatrist for mental health. I mean, if you have means and you have money, it's going to take you six months to a year just on the supply of trying to just see a psychiatrist for, you know, regular routine mental health. Now that's people with means. Those without, I mean, where 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 are they supposed to go, right? And there there's the absence of all that. And let's also not forget that, you know, for over 100 years now, you know, going back to, you know, at least the 20s, we've been dealing with this drug war, prohibition. You know, it started with opium, cannabis and and other substances in the 20s. And then by 1971, you had the Nixon administration declaring acid and other psychedelics for the first time in history as antisocial. So in 1971, with the invocation of the UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances, you know, we've had prohibition since the 70s. So what this BC decriminalization really gets at is it's, it's a victory. It's a victory in mindset from going from a slam door of prohibition and government saying, nope, there's no medical validity and utility of these medicines to decriminalizing them, which, again, I think is a lot of lip service without addressing, well, why did Canadian government follow to some extent these international commitments And how has it taken them so long to realize that this approach has been a absolute failure? So it's a monumental victory in terms of how government has traditionally looked at drug use and prohibition. And and in in that capacity, it's huge, but it really doesn't go anywhere near enough to truly address the problem. And the government has three years under this exemption, which is an experiment at the end of the day, to really see how these numbers will pan out. Will it save lives? Will it get people off drugs? Will it compound drug problems? Does it send a message to minors, for example, that drug use is okay and uh, 
2.5 grams of cocaine um, is, is no big deal, right? Uh, again, it's a monumental shift, though, from certainly the uh, era and attitude that I grew up in. I mean, I can remember back to living in Texas in 1984 when part of the whole just say no you had police and cowboy hats and guns coming to your, the elementary school, basically explaining just say no and dare and that all these drugs are bad. And, um, and, and, and ultimately, yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're in different times. Well, and you know, and I think there's there, I think there's a distinction. I think nobody's saying that all drugs are good, although there are some discussions around the use of certain psychedelic drugs that could have curative effects. Uh, there might be some other examples out there. Well, but why didn't they include say psilocybin, which, you know, we've had psilocybin since 2022, there has been medical therapeutic access. There's tons of international study and there's been a lot of clinical on this and with that proliferation of mushroom stores brick and mortar stores in vancouver plus the uh, availability online there is no shortage um that was interesting that you know that was left off and mdma for example was included so what should the goals and values of drug policy be in this country that's a great question well Really, the goals of drug policy should prioritize public health and safety with harm reductions and evidence-based approaches to actual like drug use and addiction. And the values that I think should guide this process, and we're starting to see this in the you know in in, in this decriminalization movement, is that you know there should be compassion, empathy respect for human rights and a commitment to social justice, which in the context of the drug war discussion, there was none of this. It was drugs are bad. That's it. That's all zero sum. And it still accounts for why there is not a very robust industrial hemp industry in the United States, because that's been by design. And in additionally, drug policy should be designed with a focus on reducing systematic inequalities and addressing root causes of drug-related issues. And, and that would include, you know, poverty, marginalization, and social exclusion, which, you know, you apply that into the context of the downtown east side in Vancouver, and um, some of the, the, the critics would argue that you know, perhaps some of these policies have gone too far the other way that they disproportionately also affect other facets of society with regards to public safety, property damage, and, and, and other externalities that have been caused by the liberalization of drug use. I mean, just take Hastings Street in Vancouver. I mean, what was kind of Pender and Carroll when I was a kid were you know, it's sort of the, the real druggy area of Vancouver, but that whole area now has exploded up and down uh, East Hastings to where effectively you have drug encampments now. And, uh, and arguably those drug encampments are greater health and safety issues than had would have been, you know, the issues of safe injection and access to clean supply. I think that's an important point because 
Here we are, we're introducing this, you know, you call it an experiment. Some people would dispute it's an experiment. They say that it's, uh, you know, based in a certain amount of policy research and whatnot. But uh, let, let's call it an experiment for now. I think there are a lot of raw reactions to the decriminalization of all these drugs under 2.5 grams. And we have a voting public. We elect politicians. There's going to be a federal election at some point. That comes soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how do we how do we kind of proof these experiments against political volatility? Because there are obviously people who are going to have issues with a public safety component to this. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, people invest in property and they don't want, you know, public safety can mean anything from violent drug offenders to someone messing up uh, a park, for example. People still don't like to see that across the street from where they live. Not in my backyard, as George Carlin would call it. Yeah, it's NIMBYism, if you like. And so how do we, how do we build consensus around the goals of a new drug policy? A very loaded and great question. Um, how, like, how do we do this? Well, how do we do this? Like, like politically, it seems to me is the hardest. Agreeing politically on how to address drug policy or devise a new drug policy strikes me as one of the most difficult things to do. When you got right versus left, law and order versus compassion, if you want, how do we go about building a consensus? Yeah. No. I. I, I think. Effectively, um, harm reduction has there has to be harm reduction one way or another. I mean, it's unacceptable that people are dying because they can't access services and clean medicine. So, I think everyone can agree that we need to figure out strategies that reduce harm. Um, access to treatment and support services, I think everyone can agree that you know, just making drugs decriminalized doesn't go far enough. In fact, effectively, I see it in some instances like giving someone with arrested development a loaded handgun and expecting them to make good decisions, um, right? And there is, in some degree, there is a responsibility of the state to step in in those instances. But the problem really has been that the state in Canada has really taken on this sort of nanny approach where again, for the right or wrong reasons of the drug war, was that there just was no place for these medicines. And so with that, that suppressed a lot of research and innovation. And so again, that's another uh, aspect that I think, you know, you bridge consensus through research and innovation. And that's really a problem, though, because the international drug framework that is in existence because of this drug war prohibition suppresses this research. So again, you know, until we address that the last 100 years were wrong, that the deck has unnecessarily been stacked against government, politicians and society, meaning, you know, the ability to address this problem has been totally limited, which then affects the ability for collaboration and coordination. But we do need that because these type of problems are going to take not just government, but they are also going to take and require reciprocal buy-in from society in order for it to have teeth. How do we design a new drug policy against volatility? Well, I touched on it earlier in that there has to be evidence-based policy. Right? We need multi-party support. And you know, the conservative government has traditionally anything to do with this kind of drug access or therapy around drug, 
is an issue that I think the conservative government, if they do get into power on this next election, have their work cut out for them because this is traditionally an area that conservatives tend to deal with with prohibition. So it'll be interesting to see, does this experiment, you know, will it, will it withstand an election? Um, the institutionalization of drug policy within existing governance structures is again an area that I think can help uh, quell political volatility. Again, I think the government needs to be created. How do you, how, what do you mean? What do, what, what do you mean? Sorry, by that, by the institutionalization of of drug policy. Well, regulatory bodies, for example, that can assist government ministries in streamlining some of these conditions or considerations, because I think there are a lot of good non-government advocacy groups that have been challenging and trying to work with government. But the problem is, is you've got the minister and um, you know, two ministries effectively dealing with this mental health and addictions and, and Health Canada. So effectively, I think that the creation of further government departments to help with that interface with grassroots initiative stakeholders and to be able to properly address these blind spots that um, continue to be overlooked in the way that government goes about things. How big would this change be in the, in the government's approach to illicit substances? I'm sorry, I'll just reframe the question. How, how do governments need to involve themselves in providing and regulating what are now illegal drugs? Do they need to be there as part of, you know, what's their role in the solution to safe supply, ideally? There needs to be some form of supply because without supply, you're effectively forcing people to break the law. And it'll be interesting to see if the government is sued in this regard. They were sued in cannabis. They're being sued for psilocybin. They were sued on safe injection sites. There was the PHS uh, case, which dealt again with heroin. And so if the government forces people into a more dangerous situation, then it will indicate or will demonstrate that the, these type of policies may fall afoul of the charter. You know, when you look at Section 7, life, liberty, security of the person, right, um, do, do, these, do these provisions take an addict and a drug user and put them in a in a position of user recidivism where effectively they're just stuck in a situation they can't get out of. I mean, we have to recognize that a lot of what happens in Canada's worst zip code, which is the downtown east side, it's very much a predatorial and predatorial environment. You have drug abuse, mental health, which again, these folks are preyed upon. So if you have people that cannot escape an addiction and yet their supplier is allowed to keep them hooked on unsafe supply and in unsafe circumstances, you could see litigation. And you know, there was the Bedford case, which dealt with uh, some of the criminal laws around sex work and that these laws ended up putting workers in unsafe situations. So ultimately... I think the government, I mean, look, I'm glad they're talking about this. I'm glad things are being done. 
but typical, they don't go far enough. And the, the deficiency of everyone that I've spoken to about this is that without safe supply, this program is very limited and um, has the potential, I think, to leave some facets of society worse off than they would be if there weren't stricter means of separating people from some of these dangerous situations. But this is interesting. So the government, governments are exposing themselves and their own liability by not providing for the safe supply of drugs to these users. And on the other hand, it seems quite fraught with danger as well to be supplying them with, with a supply. What's your sense of like how, how deeply are governments thinking about this? Uh, how deeply is the BC government trying to sort of square this issue? Well, I think safe supply is next. And um, I mean, it has to be because when the first Section 56 for psilocybin was granted for Thomas Hartle in August of 2020, which was the first uh, Section 56 for psilocybin since 1971, right? Ultimately, unlike medical cannabis, where our first Section 56 in that context was Terry Parker. Terry Parker was an epileptic who was allowed to grow, well, he grew cannabis for himself and other epileptics. And effectively, in that case, the Supreme Court of Canada found that it was not constitutional for Mr. Parker to be put in a position where if he followed the law, he would go without his medicine. But if he took his medicine, he'd be breaking the law. And that effectively led to the creation of, a, of the first licensed um, you know, medical access for cannabis. But now, in the case of psilocybin, Mr. Hartle was, again, allowed to transport psilocybin. He could process psilocybin, which effectively is like akin to grinding it and stirring it with honey or chocolate. He could destroy it. He could traffic it, but he could not produce it. I mean, he could not get his own supply. And so ultimately, the initial Section 56 uh, folks were, who were exempted had to source their psilocybin and many still have to from the black market. And so to say that the black market is providing dangerous product is, I think, a dangerous over uh, simplification of the situation. I mean, let's take Dana Larson. Dana Larson has been a longtime cannabis advocate. Dana Larson makes no bones that uh, he believes in the access and uh, and providing safe supply, which he has done for over, what, about 15 years now for cannabis. In the last three or four years, he has been doing safe supply of psilocybin and other psychedelics. But that money that has been, you know, would traditionally be put into litigation and advocacy Dana and his people have effectively created safe drug testing, you know, the getyourdrugstested.ca. And that was they were granted emergency powers by the BC government because I think they're the only ones that are offering a, you know, a, a anonymous testing service in order to at least provide some guarantee of testing and supply. And, you know, Dana... They just won't arrest Dana. 
you know? Um, and so that tells me that the government aren't sure how truly to address this, but they know that if they start arresting people and they start cutting off supply, they know that that's going to leave them open for charter litigation. And I think that's exactly another reason we touched on earlier is that the city of Vancouver, just like the provincial government in the context of going after unlicensed indigenous cannabis operators is that they, they, I, I think they're not sure how they would do in a charter challenge, just like it took two and a half years in the city of Vancouver dispensary test case uh, to get a decision. And until we were able to go to court. And again, I think that other municipalities, because yeah, in those we had Victoria, Chimanus, Vancouver, Kelowna, Aldergrove. Effectively, we were able to tie up all of the, the enforcement proceedings because there was a genuine charter issue. But I still think that among critics of called decriminalization or legalization, I think there are some legitimate concerns about what it means for encouraging youth to uh, take these substances in a world where drugs are decriminalized, okay, uh, or legalized, you know, what what role is there for the law in discouraging the consumption of drugs? What role is there for the state in doing that? What role should government be playing in, in suppressing the demand for drugs? Because somewhere at the end of the day, I mean, in my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, but like you can bring all the you can bring all the safe supply that you want into the province or into the country, but there's still going to be an unsafe supply pouring in, and so somewhere there has to be, or I think a lot of people believe that there has to be a component of drug policy that is on suppressing the demand. Dania Fast was quoted recently in an article, and she's a research scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Use, and she worries about the unintended consequences of excluding youth under 18 from decriminalization. And, you know, she argues that the abstinence-based approach for youth has not worked. So again, still folks under 18, 17-year-olds, for example, could technically still depending on the circumstances, perhaps be uh, subject to some form of prosecution, even if it's under youth offenders. But again, it, it, there's still a, a possibility there for that. The province really has only focused on harm reduction, the other critics argue. I mean, there are three other pillars of the drug strategy, which include prevention, treatment, and enforcement. The harm reduction side without addressing or having those considerations in balance with these others will just, I think, continue to proliferate a situation that is kind of out of whack, which is what we've seen with how the downtown east side and other neighborhoods have proliferated. But a flip side, I think that's very important to make that Vancouver is Vancouver. It does not represent how the rest of the province operates. In fact, you know, you take the view of the RCMP and 100 Mile House, for example, they have a very different attitude towards drugs and mental health than, for example, we see in Vancouver. So again, I think what it, what's good about this is, is it levels the playing field and allows some room for creativity with regional and municipal stakeholders to look at how best to address 
some of these issues. So it gives a bit of a green light uh, to, I think, to get a little bit more creative as opposed to just prohibition, which there's very little creativity there. It's a zero sum game, which arguably has not worked. What would your priority be for the next step? You got safe supply is one. Safe supply, safe consumption sites, I think, are, at least in cannabis, that has been a huge challenge. And if we look at cannabis as medicine, for example, um, the, the big obstacle to safe consumption sites is the clean air work safe laws. So, you know, if we look at safe consumption in, in the context of these other decriminalized supplies, are there externalities which will require other areas of regulation that will, you know, will, will need to be changed? And, the, you know, the, the best example really is the, you know, smoking in the workplace, which how are you going to have, you know, the consumption of crack in a safe injection site if they don't allow, um, you know, even like the Vancouver Club, for example, if you want to smoke a cigar, you literally got to go onto the roof, right? And even with the legality of cannabis, you know, I'm sure people smoke a joint once in a while on the roof of the Vancouver Club, but you can't smoke a cigarette, a cigar, or anything, a pipe, because of clean air law. What are the lessons should we be learning from the legalization of recreational cannabis? Well, I think the importance of regulation. Uh, it allowed for a safer and more controlled market. I mean, it's not perfect. The black market still is in existence. It, you know, is a, a, a direct competitor. But let's face it, safe supply, legal access is fantastic. Versus a country like you go to Mexico, uh, where you could still be arrested and go to jail, even though there's been a constitutional declaration on this. Um, going to the U.S., for example, again, it's fantastic being able to consume cannabis legally at the state level, but having a you know fully legalized federal system provides certainty and has a, a, addressed risks. Uh, I think, you know, we've also learned that there's an ongoing need for education, right? Education and awareness campaigns, they are crucial. And they have been crucial um, for helping people to understand the risks and the benefits with cannabis use. Um, the problem, though, is cannabis, despite it not being like alcohol and tobacco, I mean, alcohol and tobacco, if used as directed, will kill you. Cannabis, on the other hand, um, you know, there are medical benefits. However, cannabis is regulated and marketed like alcohol or tobacco, right? And because that's effectively, since the RJR McDonald case, um, that's how tobacco products are regulated. And I think, you know, again, informing the public that cannabis is not tobacco has been huge. Um, let's see, equity. The importance of equity has been huge. I mean, traditionally, cannabis has been kind of a white man industry. Uh, the legal industry certainly has. It's basically replaced the legacy participants by a bunch of rich white corporate guys that really don't know what they're doing. So the importance of equity and realizing um, the injustice and including those who've been marginalized and excluded is a lesson. And while Finally, I guess, challenges of implementation. You're, they're never going to get it right. And I don't think that should dissuade folks from 
<laughs> from trying to readdress these poor laws. But the regulation and legalization of cannabis, I mean, it required significant planning and implementation efforts. It still does. I mean, in the areas of licensing, distribution, and law enforcement, um, we're still seeing like the challenges and lessons to be learned in this area that ultimately we will see in these other areas. I think that's an important point because I, I think that, you know, for all that might have gone wrong with some aspects of the legalization of cannabis, there, there is a sense that there was a plan in place. Am I wrong in getting the sense that with this experiment in BC, there's a lot less planning in place? They had to do something. And they did something, and I don't think you can compare the legalization efforts and that whole machinery. I mean, there was 20 years behind that, more or less, all right, getting to. And I mean, coupled with the fact that Justin Trudeau ran on an election camp, that's probably the only thing about Justin Trudeau, um, you know, I, I, you know, I think that you know, he, he's, he's implemented. Um you know, this, the system, but let me explain the implementation of legalized cannabis was nothing like the litigation that got us there. In fact, what the government did in that following Allard and Smith in 2015, when they were then had to go back to the drawing board, when the MMPR, the medical marijuana purpose regs were declared incompatible with the charter, uh, well, they effectively drafted the Cannabis Act and the amendments not in line with the jurisprudence of reasonable, dignified patient access. It was effectively done to create a government monopoly. So instead of including the legacy actors and folks who know what they're doing, the federal government effectively tried to patch over like a biker gang, their rivals, and uh, exclude them. And the irony in doing that, it's the black market is basically without the black market. It's been the only thing that has kept the legal market honest. You know, the the oh unsafe supply and this, that and the other thing. I mean, no, the thank God for the unregulated illegal market because it's kept the legal market honest. So what do you expect is going to happen in BC over the next? We have a three year window, right? What does this story look like in 2020? on you know, January 31st, 2026. It'll be interesting to see the data and the numbers because look, I think numbers and data can always be manipulated and can tell a story. It, again, it, does this save lives? At the end of the day, what the government is doing and has been doing is not save lives. So again, if we're able to look at the trajectory of deaths from what well, was about 2016 to now, we could possibly see have there been changes in the trends and the numbers. But at the end of the day, you may also have a reduced number of deaths, but you may have a proliferation of folks who are strung out, drug addicted, and um, effectively until there is acceptable uh, counseling, therapy, and access to the other services needed, are we just going to end up creating something akin to a larger ticking time bomb. What do the experiences of other jurisdictions tell us? Oregon has gone down this path a little bit, um, quite a bit. Obviously, there's Portugal, which is another notable jurisdiction. What have they gotten right? What have they gotten wrong? How can we learn from them? 
Well, I think a lot of this comes down to, and, you know, the Portugal experiment of decriminalization and, you know, what's happened in the States. And when we look at, let's see, Colorado, which is, I think, you know, they're, they're Colorado and Oregon are kind of leading the states when it comes to these area, these initiatives. You know, I guess the difficulty is, is that they're trying to, they're, they're, you know, I guess they're, they're looking at trying to create a therapeutic model, address safe supply and mental health and addiction issues sort of all at once. Um, you know, and again, they're doing it at a state level, which is still illegal at the federal level, which again, we'll be interested to see, you know, will, will this work? But the point I was trying to make is that a lot of these decisions with the decriminalization of psychedelics in Oregon, uh, in certain uh, municipalities in California and Colorado is these were driven by decisions of state prosecutors who effectively were made the case to state government saying that we should be diverting these nonviolent offenders with possession offenses, first time, you know, drug users, teenagers with a bag of mushrooms or, you know, young adults with a bag of mushrooms, should they be in the criminal justice system? Really, this has been a means of diverting people who should not be in the criminal justice system out of the criminal justice system, which if they're not being addressed by that, then how should these these issues be addressed? And well, they're kind of throwing up the same decriminalization Hail Mary that we've seen in BC, but without safe supply. Um I, again, it, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So nobody's really found the magic <laughs> recipe or, the, or they're just not putting the resources into it that they need to. But let's, come on, let's just look at this another way. Do we need all this study? Do we need all this research? Oh, we can't do anything with cannabis. It's dangerous. It's illegal. I mean, come on. Cannabis is arguably the most studied plant in the history. I mean, Hippocrates, who, you know, the basis of modern Western medicine is based on um, Ayurvedic medicine, which has cannabis is beyond documented. Cannabis is also one of the cornerstone medicines of Chinese herbal medicine. Again, it's been around for thousands of years. So my feeling on all of this, really, with regard to a lot of access for cannabis and psychedelics and again, some of these heavier uh, opioids is that they, they, they've been around for centuries, thousands of years in some instances. And in fact, we're trying to regulate and we have had a history of regulating substances in a manner that makes no sense. Like Wade Davis, I saw speak recently and he said it makes no sense that, you know, coca leaf to cocaine is what vodkas are to potato. We don't outlaw potatoes and we regulate vodka. So why can't we do the same with these other substances? And ultimately, you know, I think we need to do a better job as lawyers and members of society holding government to account for these decisions. Because great, cannabis is legal, but really for me, why was it illegal? Can government, if you were so wrong over the last hundred years about cannabis, 
why should I take anything you say about COVID or vaccinations or psychedelics or anything when you're so wrong about everything else? So really, I think when it comes to cannabis, decriminalization, drug use, they are personal decisions. Government's role in all of that are to enable people to come to the right decisions and have the right facilities and infrastructure in place to act on that. And for too long, government, I believe, has totally played lip service to that and is wondering, you know, effectively why there is the lack of trust and engagement with government. And I think a lot of it comes down to agendas and explanations, which at the end of the day, bear little reality to the situation confronting everyone. And so how could it best reverse that and earn a little bit of trust on this, on this particular file? Well, I think there needs to be some degree of reconciliation. You know, we've seen it in the, and I, look, this isn't me comparing drug prohibition to the horrific atrocities that we have seen in First Nations. But the point I'm trying to take away from this is that an important point of moving forward in that dealing is reconciliation. And if we look at drug war and and the drug war and prohibition in similar regards, that people lost their lives, they lost their livelihoods, their children were taken from them, their property was, you know, confiscated through civil forfeiture, the stigma associated with that. And again, there's been very little from government to realize, hey, we were wrong about the last 90 years of the drug war. Um, There isn't. It's just like, it's more of this attitude of, we're giving you rights and we're giving you privileges that, to be honest, I regard as a birthright and I more look at government being in the way. So I, I think we're at an interesting crossroads that the government's wrong. Decriminalization has been declared. Dominoes are beginning to fall. And that the next phases of history have yet to be written. And we can all play an important part in that because look, Drugs are not bad. It's not a gray or a black and white or even a gray area. Drugs are what they are. It's more of an analysis of the context and the circumstances of which that drug or that substance or that compound is being sought to be used. And that is a dialogue and a discussion that I really think that we need to uh, consider. Because with all due respect, if I said this to Bruce Linton at Canopy, That, you know, I'm really lucky that, well, for me growing up, Ritalin was legal. It was regulated. And in my case, it it was the difference between, you know, being a functioning member of the class or failing miserably. And, you know, in my case, I'm so lucky that I had my parents, family, doctor and teachers that all wanted to see me to succeed and all played a very valuable part in that dialogue. And, um Ultimately, I think that's what we need to, how we need to look at drugs and medication is, is this being used in a context that's actually helping people? And again, you may need to use heroin to help heroin addicts get off heroin. That doesn't make heroin itself illegal. In fact, heroin, talk to Keith Richards. He has been using heroin for the last 50 years. And what it comes down to with him is, it's really, it comes down to the potent, potency and the quality of the supply. So, you know, this is why I think we need to be looking at 
drugs more of as a tool and educating people on the best means of using the tools and the damage and the injury that can happen. I mean, it's just like using a power saw without safety goggles. You're going to get injured. We don't ban power tools. We just have, again, education and best practice and guidance on how to engage in these tools successfully. And I think that's the way we got to look at it. Because for me, if my parents had to go to meth cooks and sneak around to like Hell's Angels bikers to try to procure Ritalin, you know, for me, I, that's the context that I look at cannabis for poor parents that, again, have to, you know, or have had to break the law in order to provide a quality of life to their children that up until recently, government said was wrong and illegal. Rob Laurie, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, for spending a good hour with us, explaining to us, you know, some of these issues and making us think a little differently about about the problem generally. Well, if I could conclude on one final positive note, this is a call to action. Drug regulation, cannabis laws and the rules, laws, regulations around psychedelics, it's a new era. For a while, there's only been a you know small handful of lawyers in the space and I think more lawyers need to be involved in the space and need to help government as well as law societies and college of physicians and nurses be better acquainted with the laws, the rules, the regs, and and the opportunities to try to reverse a lot of these detrimental pathways through drug war prohibition that have ultimately led to many of these circumstances we're at now. But thank you very much for having me. As indicated, it's a real honor to be able to speak with the CBA and be part of this dialogue. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Rob. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us if you can, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, and to hear some French, listen to our Droit Madame podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions of topics that you'd like to hear us discuss here, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. Also, check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law. We'll catch you next time. Hello, I'm Steve Bugeaud, President of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system, protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President. Episode 1 is out now.